0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the last Alien Crash Site episode of 2021. This one is fitting as it releases the day before NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency launch their jointly developed James Webb Space Telescope out into the universe. This week, I had the privilege of talking big ideas, big teams, what can be gained from true capital D discovery pursuits, and the precarious timing involved with these types of high-stakes missions with a personal hero of mine. Lindy Elkins-Tanton is a Foundation and Regions professor at Arizona State University's School of Earth and Space Exploration. Since this podcast is part of SFI's Interplanetary Project, I want to highlight that Lindy is the vice president of ASU's Interplanetary Initiative. And she is the principal investigator of NASA's Psyche mission, which is an attempt to understand a metal-rich asteroid located between Mars and Jupiter, because it may provide us with some clues about planetary formation. Psyche the Mission flies to Psyche the Asteroid next fall, and we discuss what's at stake for that exploration at length in this episode. Join us next year as we continue to think through contemporary science and space considerations with the fearless stalkers in SFI's broad interplanetary community. Future guests include Artemy Kolchinsky, Albert Cow, Rachel Lyons, Fred Sharman, and Dario Robletto. I usually end these intros with a sort of sinister warning about entering the zone, but I'm nervous and excited about tomorrow's very delicate launch, and the continued delicacy of the continued deployment of all of its instruments across the next two weeks, so I'm going to keep this one light. The scope of what we may potentially learn about the universe from this very carefully engineered machine is unimaginable. As a wrap-up to this year, it's kind of fun to wonder what an intelligent alien species would think of us upon discovering this artifact of ours. I hope they'd commend our curiosity. So, with that, I won't delay any further. My name is Caitlin McShay. This is Alien Crash Site. Happy holidays, happy new year, happy James Webb Space Telescope launch to us all. So much for, for agreeing to come into the show. It's been a very long time, but I'm happy to reconnect.
1: I'm really happy to reconnect and I'm very grateful. And so I'm going to put up a Psyche background too. Great. Which is, which is this one. It's this metal, this possible, this artist's interpretation of a metal impact crater. There we go. Oh, wow. Very different <laughs> representations. That's right. <laughs>
0: So I should say for our audience, you and I were in touch way back in 2017 when Santa Fe Institute was about to launch its interplanetary project, which is sort of a parallel sister project to the initiative that you, that you manage over at okay. ASU. Yeah,
1: that's right. And we were going to do
0: this really fun kind of uh, broad spectrum panel discussion that you were to be a part of, but you emailed a couple of days to say, sorry, something came up. And we were like, oh, I hope everything's okay. Yeah, yeah, no big deal. I just have to go testify in front of Congress about planetary science. <laughs>
1: that's right, I forgot.
0: Right. And that's because of the Psyche mission, which I I really hope to spend a little bit of
1: time today talking about, because I think we're less than a year away from launch. Is that correct? We are. We are eight months from launch, which means that we're all taking deep breaths all the time and trying to keep our tone of voice normal.
0: (laughs) Right. And you guys are probably hyper scheduled because within the last year,
1: isn't it like minute by minute? It's literally, yeah, it is. It's minute by minute. That's exactly right. Thank you for understanding, because I think a lot of people are like, eight months, that's tons of time. Well, for sure you could fit in a few extra meetings or whatever. <laughs> right. It's really tight. Plus, we've had to build hardware during COVID, and so, you know, schedule slips have occurred, and we're doing okay, but it takes uh, it takes an army right now. Well, I appreciate the hour that you're giving me. That's really wonderful. I'm really happy to talk with you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it.
0: That's great. Okay, so why don't we give our listeners a sort of background into Psyche? It is the name of a mission, but it is also the name of the mission's destination, which is this metal lump that you find interesting for a variety of reasons.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, you know, humankind, we've been out there sending robots to do space exploration on our behalf for decades and decades now when we visited Objects made of rock, like the moon and Mars and Mercury and Venus, and objects made of ice, like Europa, we've, and now we need a much more intensive investigation of those. But objects made of gas and ice, like Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune, we've done, we've done flybys, but we've never investigated something that seems to be made mostly of metal. And we don't know for sure how much metal is in psyche, um, maybe half, maybe more than half. We think it's probably a part of the metal core of something called a planetesimal, a little tiny planet that formed just in the first eye blink of our solar system and became more or less the ingredients to make the larger rocky planets. And some of these planetesimals didn't get incorporated into rocky planets and instead pieces of them got stranded in the asteroid belt. Almost everything in the asteroid belt seems to be made of rock, but just a few especially Psyche, seem to be largely made of metal. So we wanna go investigate a new kind of world. Okay,
0: and why is that? What, what are we hoping to find? Does it remind us maybe of something that we're a little more familiar with?
1: <laughs> well, we would really love for it to be a big piece of a core because it would be the very first core, the first generation of cores before the planetesimals merged and their cores merged and they became bigger like planetary embryos and they merged and their cores merged. And eventually we created our rocky planets, each of which has got a big metal core, which is, seems to be part of the secret of habitability. It creates our magnetic field and uh, we're never going to visit our cores. And so this is the only way we're ever going to visit a metal core. If indeed that's what psyche is, because it might not be. And in any case, it'll be an exemplar of like if if the earth is the cake in the end, like the birthday cake, you know, then there's eggs and flour and all the other butter, all the other nice ingredients out there. And you want to go look at them and see what it is that makes a habitable planet. And so Psyche will be one of those ingredients. That's great.
0: Um, And yeah, I mean, it would be great if we could kind of get to the depths of our own planet to understand its formation, but it's too far away and too hot and maybe we'd crack wide open. So this is a a good, hopefully, proxy for that sort of exploration.
1: We hope so. We're sure gonna learn something new. That's the thing about space exploration. It always surprises us. No No matter how hard we try to use what we imagine to be wildly creative minds, we're not able to imagine all the things that we encounter when we go out there. Right. So can I ask maybe a simple question? I guess I'm
0: wondering why it is that we recognize that psyche is so metallic. I would think that any object out in the in space would be accreting some sort of a barrier. Maybe it would look rocky and we wouldn't know how interesting it might turn out to be. Why isn't that happening? Are we seeing it at the beginning of something or are we beyond what it should be when it was rocky? What do we think is going on there?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true that it's true that... Uh, I, know we think of we think of the very beginning of the solar system as the time when lots of things were impacting each other and for sure it was seems to have been much more energetic and full of impacts at that time but that time of impacting isn't over it's just slower and so we see impacts still coming onto the earth and we have little tiny micrometeorites that hit us every day and we have the whole library of meteorites that have fallen to earth um, even just during uh, recent years that humans have really been collecting them but the, the truth is that it seems that asteroids don't get completely covered by new material. And so, so Vesta is a great place to look for that. and it looks like a lot of Vesta's surfaces, it's original, it's real, it's bedrock, so to speak. Um, but then there are places where Vesta had an impactor splash it with material. So we think that whatever we see on Psyche's surface probably will there'll be some impactor material, but largely it'll be whatever psyche itself is, whatever the bulk of psyche is. And so, we look at it from earth and we try to figure out what we can from this distance. And, and the first thing that we look for is its density. And, and that's something that is a much um, more all encompassing number than just what might be smeared on its surface. It's really a, a body characteristic of the whole body. And so people can see how psyche is actually slightly, its orbit is slightly perturbed by just dis- distant other objects. And that gives us the sense of its mass. And then people make, um, they're very rough three-dimensional models of what Psyche's shape might be by looking at how the light bouncing off its surface changes as it rotates and by getting the highest resolution images we could which are not very high resolution and then we have its volume and so between volume and mass we have a guess of its density and it's just right in between the density of pure metal and the density of pure rock and so uh it's someplace in that range it may be the densest asteroid in the asteroid belt. We haven't measured everything. The latest numbers for Cleopatra, which is another asteroid that seems to be made of metal, show Psyche as more dense. Um, We don't know yet, but it's pretty dense. And so that tells us there has to be a lot of metal. And then that is a body characteristic of it, not just its surface.
0: Right. And so we should say the reason that we don't have fantastic pictures is because this thing is very far away. It's beyond Mars. And so what you're sending is going to take quite a bit of time to get there. And then once it's there, it'll begin to do its sort of threefold survey. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to describe the various tools that you're sending along, because it's actually a pretty like shoestring mission. You're getting a lot of information from these tools, but it's not a terribly
1: expensive mission, which is kind of cool. It's very streamlined. It's very streamlined and I appreciate you saying that because uh, in an absolute sense it's extremely expensive space missions are. Uh, it's not a flagship mission level it's not like a rover to Mars, but it's still a lot of taxpayer dollars and our job was to create the biggest bang for the buck, you know what is absolutely the most streamlined mission we could possibly design that would give us the biggest number of discoveries and the highest science return that we possibly could. That's everyone's goal and that's was our goal as well. Um, Very aware of the support of the nation to make it possible to do this and feeling like we're doing something on behalf of all of humankind. And so here's the trick, like here's the really hard part. Since we don't really know what Psyche is, because it is far away, it's way out past Mars, as you say, you know, well on the way to Jupiter in the outer part of the asteroid belt, and we've done our best to gather data, and people all around the world are studying Psyche and publishing data, and we're looking at it all, we had to create, we had to design a suite of instruments that would allow us to answer a set of questions about this unusual asteroid, knowing that we didn't really know what it was. There's a range, a spectrum of possible psyches based on the data we have right now. So how do you pick instruments that would work for any one of those possible psyches? Because, you know, sadly, we are actually not in charge of what psyche is. Whatever it is, when we get there, we have to deal with it. And so so what we designed was, uh, of course, cameras. You have to bring cameras so you can see what it looks like. And we put filters on our cameras, which means that we can actually tell a little bit about its chemistry because the light that bounces off an object has been altered by the chemistry of the object. And so by using these filters, we can see what kinds of light is absorbed by Psyche and what kind is, is reflected. So we'll bring these cameras with their imagers and we'll send up back pictures. And then we'd love to know if it has a magnetic field uh, because maybe it is was the core of a planetesimal. Maybe it had a magnetic dynamo and, 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 and measured that magnetic field. So we'll carry magnetometers. And then our third instrument is called a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer. And that's a real space specialty instrument, isn't it? And uh, all the right words in it. It has all the right words in it. And, And I did not know a lot about these instruments before I started this particular class of instruments when I started working on the mission. But this is so fascinating. How do you know what the composition of uh, an asteroid is when you're only orbiting. We're not landing, we're not sampling, we're not sample returning, we're just orbiting. So if the closest we ever get to the surface is say 100 kilometers away, how can you look down and know what it's made of? Well, one of the instruments you can use is this gamma ray and neutron spectrometer. And so here's the magic of it. There are these high energy particles or or radiation, depending on if you want to think of it as particle or a wave as they say, um, called intergalactic cosmic rays. I think I think we've all sort of heard the phrase cosmic ray and and you know until you study it, it sort of sounds like a science fiction or fantasy construct the but weapon it's a, yeah it's a weapon that's right <laughs> maybe it is a weapon, we don't know. Uh, These things are created, um, uh, it seems like, in the black holes in the centers of galaxies. So our galaxy makes them, and other galaxies make them, and they go zooming through space, some of them with very high energy, and we're um, somewhat protected by our our atmosphere and magnetic field from them. But airless bodies like Psyche are not, and the moon um, and these cosmic rays strike their surfaces all the time. And so what happens to the hapless atom that's on the surface of Psyche when it's smashed into by a cosmic ray is that cosmic ray adds its energy to the atom and then the atom gives off that energy again. And it gives it off in the form of gamma rays another kind of radiation and neutrons. And it turns out, so here's the magic part. So you've got this cosmic ray coming from a giant black hole in some distant galaxy that comes smashing into Psyche. And when that atom that it hits gives off its gamma ray, the gamma ray is an energy that's characteristic of the kind of atom it is. So Psyche's um, gamma ray neutron spectrometer will collect those gamma rays and neutrons and know what the atoms are on the surface of Psyche. So we can actually build up an atomic composition of the surface of Psyche using this amazing instrument in orbit. And so that's really our suite. And then we'll, we'll study the, the gravity of Psyche by seeing how the spacecraft reacts to Psyche as we orbit. Um, and that is the story. And we think we can answer a whole suite of science questions by combining the data from all of those instruments.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. And it is kind of telling how much can be known about any sort of floating space entity just from such a, a scan, a very simple scan of the, the surface structure and all of those characteristics. Do you have a hope? like dream psyche, what what, would Lindy like psyche to turn out to be?
1: I do, I do. Okay, so um, I I guess in physics, they call it the fiducial model, your first idea, your first model of what the body might be, and then every other model is kind of compared to that one. So our first model is that it's a part of the metal core of a little planetesimal that did in fact melt and differentiate into a metal core in a rocky exterior, like I was describing but then we have all these other models in our minds. And I will tell you that my dream model is not the fiducial model. My dream model is that it's some unusual combination of rock and metal that we never envisioned before, and that it will teach us something completely new about the earliest solar system and the disk and how, how planets come together. You know, what if it's 75% metal and 25% some unusual kind of rock? And we have to figure out how those two materials could ever come together. That'll give us such great clues about how planets are built. So that's my real dream is that it's something that we hadn't anticipated.
0: Yeah, of course, that would just generate a lot more work. You, we, we seek anomaly, but then all of our, our uh, you know, consequent experiments would be a lot larger if we're reverse engineering something we've never seen before. That's so that's exactly really fine. Right.
1: I'm just trying to stay employed. You got me. That's it. Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> I can edit that out. Um, well, so I wanted to ask about the challenges associated with something as big as an exploratory mission like this. I could talk in a very immediate sense about how things changed once COVID came around and everybody's kind of working patterns probably impacted the building of this device. Sure. But I also just wonder what it's like to kind of galvanize a group as large as this group is and what that sort of you know global collaboration looks like. And I think it's probably, I think it's really dreamy, but I'm sure it's difficult. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about wrangling a team like that
1: I love it it is dreamy i agree with you entirely and it's so interesting you know what we're trying to do here is is build something that is so big and complicated that no single person understands how it works and so that is what systems engineering is it's this amazing mental construct that is this leap in human evolution that allows us to build things so complicated that there isn't a single person who understands everything about it and yet it works And so um, our team right now, I think, is about 500 people. And they're not all full time. You know, Some people are just a sliver of time, and other people are half time and all kinds of things. At the peak, we're about 800 people. Um, But now all the parts, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them have been delivered to Jet Propulsion Laboratory, all the subsystems. And so it's the team that's actually integrating. So it's a little bit smaller team. So a lot of people are at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. A lot of people are at Maxar Industries. This is our our industrial partner who built the chassis and the power system up in um, Palo Alto. And that chassis and power system are now at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And then we have different partners who built each of the instruments. And we have additional subcontractors and sub-subcontractors all over the world who have created parts and pieces and subsystems uh, for for this spacecraft. And so it's such an interesting team issue. How do you get all these people to feel like they're on one team, first of all? And then, and then uh, uh, how, do you, how do you actually manage them when, uh, you know, for me, I, I am the lead of the mission and I signed my name to NASA. Uh, and, and the thing that I really promised is that if I knew a reason that this space mission was not gonna work, I would bring it to everyone's attention so that we could really think about do we need to cancel do we need to completely change direction i can't do that unless i'm as involved in every aspect as i possibly can be which means learning a million things i never knew before and then working really closely with many teams of people who do not report to me in that sense you know we have got this nasa contract. And uh, and NASA is really all of our bosses, and so it's one of these things that I think is very common in human experience, which is that you have responsibility, but you don't have authority. So, say something went wrong at one of our subcontractors; those people do not literally report to me; they report up their management chain to their manager. And so, if I need to do something, you know. Like, very heavy handed, I would have to go through NASA, up to NASA, and back down to them that way. And so it's a weird situation responsibility without authority. But so much of it is about the vision of what we're trying to do, the excitement of going into space, caring about the fact that we have got a, a, a launch date that we can't miss, and just connecting to other human beings. And, and a lot of it comes down to I think a very common thing, which is, you know, let's eat a meal together, let's get to know each other, let's visit with each other, let's have conversations until we know and trust each other and, and can act as one team. And so we do as much of that as we can, less during COVID. Uh, it's about human connection. In the end, it's only about the people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems that there's a lot of information for someone in your position to have to kind of manage in these sort of like crucial decision spaces. And really what it comes down to is trusting in the expertise of everyone else involved. You can't, know, right. you can't do this alone.
1: And most strongly, I have to say, trusting in the expertise and the communications I have with our project manager, Henry Stone at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So he's the person who's really, um, the buck stops with him in terms of building the physical spacecraft and getting it ready to be managed as a flight project. And so uh, working with him every day, and then a suite of other leaders across organizations because of course I don't know all these things and not any one of us does.
0: Right, could you talk a little bit about this narrow launch date that you just mentioned? Why it is that you're kind of up against
1: this very narrow window next fall? So right, so right, we have what's called a planetary launch, that is to say our launch relies on where other planets are, not just us. So if you're launching an earth orbiting satellite well here we are always on the earth, you have a lot more opportunities to um, to actually uh, launch successfully many, many different dates, many different years that you can launch successfully for earth orbiter, but we need to actually go out at a time that we can get a gravity assist from Mars. And Mars and the Earth are only in this lovely proximity every 26 months. That's why there's this 26-month cadence of sending Mars missions off. Right. And so we need to launch um, at the end of next summer, early next fall, in order to get our gravity assist from Mars and be slung out to where Psyche is. And in fact, Psyche and Mars are not always in the same places relative to each other. So even 26 months later, we could get another Mars assist, but Psyche would be in a bit of a different place and it would take us longer to get there. So, so this
0: specific assist is what's necessary is to get you the to the end goal, I see. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are other dates we could take. The next one is 26 months later, but it's not quite as good. And, um, and launch slips are exceptionally expensive keeping the spacecraft alive and well, keeping your marching army ready to do all the things they need, all the people who are specially trained for your mission because they're all unique. And so we are absolutely committed to hitting this uh, this launch.
0: It reminds me a little bit of the Voyager, how in order to get this device as far out as possible, we almost needed a, a gravity assist from all of
1: the planets in our solar system, which is why it, it was, was like amazing. this narrow window of 180 years or something.
0: That yes.
1: was amazing, right? And another one like that is the fabulous Lucy mission that just launched. Yes, I mean, that was like a miracle trajectory, even more narrow in each of these cases than ours is.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. And I kind of like how, you know, there's this, this phrase that the universe doesn't care about you. Who's to say, I don't know, maybe the life within the universe <laughs> does, but um, you know, you do really have to rise to the occasion. So, you know, yes. we don't get two extra years to do this. We have to do this when we can, because this is our chance. Exactly. And uh, that's not something that you can make up for yourself. So right, universal dependence of some sort.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're travelers. We're not the driver here.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, speaking of contemporary asteroid missions, what did you think about DART?
1: Oh, I think DART is so cool. <laughs> yep.
0: Different sort of aim for the asteroid, but still nonetheless really kind of amazing that we're capable of achieving these strange innovations.
1: Well, I love that we have people that are so committed to thinking about these existential threats that we can actually begin to think ahead and begin to protect ourselves, because, indeed, asteroid impact is one of the existential threats for life on Earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Figuring out how to avert such a catastrophe is a fantastic goal, and I love that we have a civilization that allows people to work on that, and DART is a really important step in that direction. I think it's so cool. Think so too. Actually, this is a good
0: transition to talk about maybe the interplanetary initiative in general, because I certainly come up against this with some you know criticism about why SFI is interested in stuff out there when there's so much that we could be putting our time and resources towards down here. Yes. And um, there is something to be said about the necessary kind of lengthening of time scale that we occupy when we think interplanetarily. Absolutely. And so I wondered if you could give us an introduction to your initiative, which does predate SFIs. So, but we recognize how important it is to kind of begin to think in those longer timescales and how, you know, maybe counterintuitive it might be that going out will in many ways help us here. And I wondered so if you could so. give us a little yeah, foundation as to your, you know, wisdom in that a few years ago. when oh, all came I, to be. I have
1: strong thoughts about this and I'm excited to talk about them, but I do want to add that on the planetary timescale, we really did start at the same time. You know, we have the same kinds of ideas. waking up at the same moment, at the same moment. That's um, good. Yeah, you know, I think that there are a number of reasons why both exploring space is important and also why thinking about it here on Earth is important. And, and I'll start with one, one that I think is unavoidable, which is that we are going to explore space, whether you and I want to or not, because exploration is a human imperative. It's in our blood, and people are going to do it. And we see that happening, individuals driving it, not just countries driving it. We need to see what's out there. Humans have been imagining being out in space and looking back at planet Earth literally for thousands of years before it was ever even wildly imaginable that we would be able to literally do it. It's just in our minds. We have to go out and do it. So it's going to happen. So if it's going to happen, then let's try to do it better. Uh, let's, Let's do exploration in a way that we haven't done it in the past. Human exploration so far to parts of the earth has almost always been a disaster for other humans in horrible ways. And it's been enriching for only a very, very few. And it's been limited, frankly, to men. And so let's try to include everybody this time. It gives us a chance to be our better selves. And as we plan it and as we try to do it better, I think that we can take all those lessons and use them here on earth to make us better here on earth. I think it's a fantastic way to clear our thought processes to imagine what we could be both as we explore and as we interact here on earth, because after all, it's just humans that are doing it, humans that are paying for it, humans who are being paid for it, all of it here on earth.
0: Yeah, and And the very brave humans who are going out and actually doing it. That's. a, a right. totally different animal for me as well but i do like what you say um there is something to be said about how we recalibrate our our notion for exploration in sort of a non colonial way that there yeah. are we could almost te- it it becomes a sort of like social imperative to figure out yes. ways to gain knowledge without the suppression of indigenous whatever's out there or maybe or who knows yeah.
1: Or here, for that matter. Exactly. Let's try to make it possible for everyone who wants this. And something I noticed as as an educator, I've been working in academia for for decades. I've also worked in business. I kind of have different points of view. But from the point of view of an educator, there's little that inspires people to harder work, in my experience, in STEM fields and the idea of space exploration. So many of the narratives we have on earth right now are narratives of guilt and narratives of fear. You know, They're around pandemics and climate change, and these are problems we really need to change and, and, and learn how to manage these and many others, but they can be managed and learned within a construct that's more positive, more futuristic, more optimistic, and you can use space exploration for that motivation. Right. As we're seeing,
0: um, I mean, the, the name of the of the trip was actually inspiration for X. We're seeing that there's this kind of lovely, inclusive thing that's happening now that more and more civilians are having access to this sort of, you know, the overview effect or whatever you want to call it. Right, right. Um, and how immediately all of those individuals are, as soon as they come back to Earth, they're scrambling to find ways to help in whatever way they can. It's like something yes. very cohesive emerges from that yes, experience.
1: Isn't that beautiful?
0: I think it is. Um I was extremely touched by the Will Shatner return. Um on the on the I Bezos know. piece. So I sweet. Know. But yeah, no, I think it's uh it's interesting to think about space missions in general when you do have this, you know, out there or here imperative where where should the priority be placed? And it, it is hard to to justify very expensive space missions when people are dying because of a virus that we just can't seem to figure out or or get behind. Um but I wonder if it's especially difficult for something that's so very discovery-y, like Psyche. Mm -mm. Did you find that you had a more of a challenge maybe in in pitching this mission than other more like known entities?
1: I don't think so, I think less so actually. Okay. Because there's, um, there's even more reason to want to go learn about things we know nothing about than it is to learn the next increment of knowledge about something that we know something about already. And I would say, I think that there's a fundamental fallacy in this argument that how, why are we spending our time and money on something in space when we could be spending it here? And of course, everyone that comes up a lot, I, I, it's really not clear that more money is actually the solution a lot of times here on earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, so many of the big philanthropies in, in recent years have been turning away from what they consider to be charity and toward what they consider to be social change. So how do we really help people solve their own problems? how do we help everyone bootstrap themselves? You know, we don't wanna feed them for a day, you know, the thing teach a man to fish, that thing. And, um, and so, so one of our biggest imperatives in interplanetary initiative at Arizona State University is to, is to create processes and educational programs that teach people how to solve problems from their own points of view. So let's get community-based problem-solving, individual-based problem-solving, nation-based problem-solving really moving in a big way so that people understand how to recognize an unsolved problem, how to take steps towards solving it so that they don't immediately feel it's someone else's job to fix the problem and where nobody needs to parachute in from another part of the world to help solve a problem, but people can solve it in their own place in the way that it needs to be solved for them. Uh, You know, I think that, that that, thing which is really inspired by space exploration would help all of humankind more than, you know, another million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's uh, you know,
0: despite the name interplanetary, it seems very grassroots, very local, very um, you know, kind of an individual solving a problem within their niche, which of course they'd have more immediate access to than like you say, the parachuting hero or yes, yeah. Right, right, that's,
1: right, right.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really inspiring. We love the Arizona State University. I mean, what an institution. And um, I especially appreciate how often because we try to do this with interplanetary at SFI too, how often things like imagination and research kind of coalesce into something really meaningful.
1: Right, right. that interdisciplinary point of view that you and I share so much. And mm -hmm. I know that you work really hard on bringing people of many disciplines together. And we do too. We've created new teaming models to make this happen within the research construct of a university. And I wonder why this doesn't happen more everywhere all the time. Why is it that we work with people right in our own discipline? It seems kind of silly.
0: Yeah and um it's just furthering the kind of knownness of that discipline. It's almost like uh the problems that need to be resolved I think usually arise out of, you know, polite civil discourse and maybe contention, but if like a physicist sees something wrong with a biologist's claim or vice versa, then maybe that's a problem that would have gone unanswered for a long time in a conference of only physicists forever. It's
1: Yes, that's right. That's right. I think it's important.
0: Um, I also think uh, that the inclusion of things like art into this endeavor is really wonderful too, because as you said, it's this human imperative to explore and science is a fantastic way of doing that. But I think art is too. And I really love that in the way that you kind of craft your educational curriculum, when you talk about Psyche and other kind of larger missions, you don't separate those two things. They're additive, they're coupled, they're both important. Um, And I think that that's not a popular claim (laughs) yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think there's there's this uh, there's this fallacy that people have that 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 art and science in particular are somehow opposites, um, and it comes along with this uh, neurological notion that became popular that people are right brained or left brained, which has mm-hmm. been very thoroughly <laughs> disproven by neurology and cognitive science. You know, the fact is that we're all just humans trying to apprehend our world with the tools that come most comfortably to hand, mm-hmm. and so and so the idea that that science is 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 utterly dispassionate and completely um, separated from the imagination and the biases of the observer is wrong. You know, that our ability to understand anything around us relies on our imagination of what it might mean. And and if you think about it that way, that's exactly the same thing an artist is doing. We're Mm. We're just doing it. We're doing it with a different medium. And so I love bringing people together to work together on these things from all of their different disciplines
0: yeah and I think quite importantly, as well, if some you know fantastic insight emerges from the rigorous scientific approach to understanding the universe, a lot of the times that's inaccessible to those who don't exist within that discipline, and therefore right. it's something like the medium of art that makes it somehow more easily communicated to the world, and these are insights that the world yes. should have access to. so they're they're kind of partners in in the process as well, in a really important kind I of, think of global so, way. Too.
1: Yeah, and and, you know, it, it, it used to be, I think it's less true now, but I think it used to be that when artists and scientists worked together, it was often that an artist was sort of seconded onto an existing science team and asked to interpret their findings, and I'm not sure that that ever really drove art as a discipline forward. And, um, and I'm not sure that it very often really drove science forward. And so we like a model where the artist and the scientists come together and co-create the project they're working on. Right. Um, and then it can drive everyone's discipline forward as well as the whole thing together. Um, we couldn't do that exactly uh, with Psyche Mission because it, we had to do, develop the engineering and the science simultaneously and then really add the art project. But now we have the Psyche-inspired student collaborations with Psyche Mission, where every year we take applications from students in two and four year colleges within the United States. The students themselves can be from anywhere in the world, but the colleges have to be here. Uh, And then we choose 16 of them based on their applications and we fund them to create four original works of art through the year. And so we've done this four years now and it'll go on every year. And we often have this fantastic collaboration going on with the science and engineering team of the mission people asking, you know, how would you show someone this truth, or how would you represent this thing that we're trying to do, or can you give me a, a piece that I can use to show to people that would explain this thing that I'm doing? And then, the, and then the artists asking the engineers and the scientists, what does it look like when you do this thing, or what does this aspect of the science actually mean? And um, and then this amazing art comes flowing out. And so it's all visible on our website, and we create books and we create walkthrough galleries, but. the thing I've almost loved most about it is that if you can imagine a medium in which to do art, we've had it. Uh, You know, of course we have drawing and painting and we've had music composing. And of course we've had, you know, people have written plays and they've written songs, they've written poems, but we've also had things like chalk art and we've had, uh, jewelry and we've had cooking people have made food art and then and then my, one of my favorite ones is a woman who was she's a classically cha- trained in, in Indian dance from, from the nation of India and she composed a dance for us um, of which a part of it was drawing in a small pan of blue sand with her toe during parts of the dance so at the end of the dance she had a sand drawing as a more permanent artifact of what she created and um, oh these things are incredibly uplifting and exciting Absolutely!
0: What a fantastic project. I will definitely find it and link it to our show notes because now I'm just it piques my my personal curiosity. I'm sure it'll pique our listeners too. I have a question about maybe like a literary element of the Psyche mission, and it just happens to be that coincidentally, I just reread uh, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, which is this oh. retelling of the Psyche myth. And um, I don't know. I just wonder. You didn't find Psyche. Someone a very very long time ago found Psyche, and That's I don't right. know if you or anybody in your team has a sense as to why it was named that um, because I'm so used to like male named things in space as discovered by early astronomers. So I'm just curious about what, whether or not there is any sort of like, Mythic hypothesis as to why this very special metal thing
1: was the, exactly name the name Psyche. Now that's so interesting. So Psyche was, as an asteroid, was discovered in 1852 by um, by a man named Annibale de Gasparis at the Naples Observatory, and um, and this was in the wake of the um, the original discovering of the asteroids were all in the very early 1800s, and and Psyche is is properly named 16 Psyche because it was the 16th asteroid ever found. And uh, so not very many found back then. Now we know there are literally millions, um, but at that time there were just a few. And they were all named after gods and goddesses. And in fact, there was a team of uh, astronomers, maybe you know this story, it's like one of the best stories in planetary science, I think. There had been, um, been this idea, you know, the Bode law, that, that there, was a, there was an algebraic expression that explained where each of the planets was, and there was one missing where the asteroids are. And so, um, and so it, it turns out, I mean, it was just a polynomial that happened to have a zero, and, you know, it really didn't have any greater meaning. But at the time, uh, an astronomer in Germany named Franz Xavier von Zach put together a big team of astronomers throughout Europe to find the missing planet and they had a really proper name, but the but their common name, their, their nickname, the group was uh, was De Himmelspolizei, the Celestial Police. Their job was to set straight the heavens, to set them to rights, to make them orderly again by finding this missing planet, and all they found was asteroids. And de Gasparis was not a member, but uh, he, he got excited and he started looking and he found this and a number of other asteroids. He was an, an important astronomer. I don't know why he picked exactly the name Psyche for this. Um, there is an Eros, and there's also um, the the child of Eros and Psyche is often called in English pleasure, and there is also a, a, an asteroid named after this child. Um, but I but I do know the people at the Naples Observatory now, and I'm going to ask them your question.
0: Yeah, and I'm just so
1: if I find the answer because that's so great. Why Psyche? Why Psyche? Why?
0: I also just wonder what, um, back in 1880-whatever, uh, we were capable of seeing, because as we said, it's very far away. If we could tell that it was shiny, maybe it's because, oh, well, Psyche's even more beautiful than Aphrodite. Let's call it that. I have no idea, but no, it it's a fun question. it's very
1: dark, actually. It's fairly dark, and it just looked like a point of light like everything else. Yeah. You know, even now, from with a big telescope on Earth, you just see a little point of light. <laughs> and so, I don't know, but I'm going to see if I can find out. It's a great question.
0: Thanks. Yes, please let me know, Lindy. I'm very curious. Um, okay, I guess I have one more kind of missiony question before we switch to the alien question. But um, I guess I'm wondering once everything goes right, everything is built properly, and we get our launch window, and August or September, Psyche, you know, yes, sets sail. Um, it's quite a long journey. It's three or four years, is that right?
1: That's right, That's right. It is three point four years to get out to Psyche. We're using solar electric propulsion, uh, and so our our um, our propulsive agent, is not an explosive toxic chemical, it's actually a noble gas, it's the noble gas xenon. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very um, efficient form of propulsion, but it's slow. So we won't get there until January of 2026.
0: And so what ha- what does your, your team of 500 do between September 2022 and January 2026?
1: After launch, the team will get quite a bit smaller and we'll go into the mission management process. Okay. And um, so I personally have not been part of a team in this process, this part of the process before, um, but I'm told by multiple people that it's not gonna be less busy than we are right now, which is a little bit hard to believe. (laughs) Uh. So first we have a 90 day checkout where we make sure that everything is working correctly. And where we operate our technology demonstration, the deep space optical communications instrument, which is um, uh, it uses lasers to communicate with the earth rather than radio waves. Lasers are much more broadband than radio waves. So the joke yeah. is this'll be how we get Netflix to Mars. And so we'll be practicing with the deep space optical comm and we'll checking out everything. And then we'll be cruising. And during cruising, we'll be constantly checking where we are and doing station keeping and, uh, and, and fixing our trajectory a little bit and then doing calibrations with the different instruments and, and testing and testing and testing all of our operational routines. Because once we get there and we go into orbit, we have to be so ready, we have to know every command we're going to send the order it's going to go in exactly how the data is coming back when is the deep space networks lined up for us. um, And making sure that we get every ounce of possible science when we arrive so apparently it's going to be a lot of really hard work all that time, as opposed to a sort of a sleepy hibernation, which is what I was dreaming about.
0: <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was hoping for a bit of a respite for you too. Oh, well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. You want to be prepared for when the time comes, but you know, you you could have a weekend, I would hope, but I guess not. I, yes,
1: I'm going for <laughs> that for sure.
0: <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, well, we will see what what comes. Are, are the instruments deployed as it's traveling or no? They're probably kept protected until we get to like within a couple of kilom- 100 kilometers, a hundred kilometers.
1: Some of them will be in use as we go doing cool. calibrations and things like that. And particularly the imager, you know, we're, we're, we're planning on getting those, like there's really far away psyche and closer and closer psyche. Yes. As we get closer and closer. And um, as part of our deep conviction that space exploration is for everyone and not just for this team of lucky scientists who got to be early picked. Um, We already have built a pipeline for the images that they're gonna be free on the internet within 30 minutes of our receipt. And um, And so nobody will have to wait for us to edit them and take out anything that looks questionable or try to publish about them first. Everyone in the world gets to look at it all at the same time.
0: That's fabulous. I mean, it's so obvious. I love that. Why not share what we're gaining immediately? It's so
1: obvious. Like, like this idea, and I know I'm not like not all scientists think this way. And <laughs> my own team is going to be mad at me. But this idea that we should be able to keep the data just to ourselves for a fairly long period of time so that we can publish our ideas first, it's such a sad kind of primacy. Yeah, You know, in the longer term, who really cares who thought of it first as if it's, you know, interpreting this state of this way or interpreting it that way. I think it's a much greater force for good to in- invite people in and say exactly. if we can all think big. And so we're trying to do that as much as we can.
0: I think that's great i'm totally for it and i'm curious to see what emerges how the global public will take these images and what they'll do with them and their sort of contribution to this very large project
1: yes i hope people are excited and i hope it creates more joy and new ideas than it is like controversy and you know i mean i'm sure there's always people who see faces and animals and fossils and things like that and in fact our brains are trained to see those things that's right um, um, but what i'm hoping is that we also get people who think way outside the box and think of solutions and explanations for the pictures that we haven't even thought of.
0: Yeah, that would be great. Um, Okay, so I guess with that, if I can find a transition here, I do wanna ask the roadside picnic question.
1: Um,
0: Obviously, you you point to this fact that we have this tendency. I think there was an image that the Chinese lander on the moon recently published. There's like a very strange cube in the background. All of us are trying to make it into like a monolith or a building or something because we can't help ourselves. But um, yeah, we have a tendency to understand things through the perspective of our own lived existence. Can't this help. becomes tricky when we stumble upon an alien crash site where there are all of these strange objects left behind by a perhaps more sophisticated species. Right. So in keeping with the theme of the podcast, let me ask you the alien crash site question, Lindy. Yes. At the risk of imprisonment, great personal injury, even death, what object do you hope to uncover from an alien crash site? Well, you know,
1: I was thinking about this question when you first said it. and the first thing that came into my mind was, well, of course I want an infinite power supply that creates no greenhouse gases. Like that was sort of like a duh sort of answer. And I would definitely risk my life to go in and get that. And then I felt like, well, I don't really have an answer to this question. You know, how does this relate? And then over time, as I I kept thinking about it, I have to tell you, Caitlin, I really did realize that there was something that I would risk my life for even more than a carbon-free power source. I I have this, I have this real uh, sense that we need to have fewer heroes and that all of us need to see the power that we have within ourselves. And that's the only way we're going to become a more advanced and successful species in the longer run. Not by watching somebody else do it and go, wow, they're amazing. I could never do that. But instead, looking inside of ourselves and realizing I can solve that problem. I can take steps. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be just me. It doesn't have to be right the first time. But I can take some action and try to make things better. That's actually really how I think we need to progress and so what I would love is to go into this alien crash site and find something at first I was thinking what is it is it an amulet is it is it like something that you breathe I, I don't quite know what the artifact is but something that gives each person that certainty that they have agency and they have courage to take a step and that they're not afraid of failing and they're not afraid of being wrong and they're not afraid of having to try twice. But just that sense that I can solve a problem and I'm gonna step up with my team and solve a problem. And, and it's kind of an anti-hero view of the future. Um, and so I would have to believe that if an alien came and happened to just have lunch on this planet on the way by um, that they would have figured that out. And, and that something they left behind would give us a bit of the essence of that.
0: Yeah, I like that. I think um, this is not maybe a normalizing thing, but the idea of normalizing feeling stupid sometimes would be great because of course we feel stupid when we're learning something we don't know, but that feeling is the worst. And so we try to avoid it and then we don't end up. Yeah, it's it's a a divider.
1: It's baked into education that you're not supposed to speak until you know the answer, but how great would it be to always be in a situation where Not knowing something was wonderful, because it then gave you an opportunity to learn it.
0: Right. And so maybe this thing that you find is something like an alien educational tool, uh, an educational philosophy. That's
1: right. That's what it is. Yeah, That's right.
0: And so do you employ a little bit of that thought in the in the education that you do? How do you get people to become comfortable with not knowing? How did the aliens do that in the first place?
1: <laughs> well, we Maybe we're along the same lines of what they're doing. Yeah, we've been working on this for years and years, and we do have a process. There are lots and lots of people around the world who practice what's called inquiry education, where you're basing your, your work on the questions of the students or the inquiry of the students. But usually it's heavily, as they say, scaffolded by the teacher. Mm-hmm. But we've developed ways that um, it's a structure, a process by which I believe that anyone can learn anything so that it gives you steps and a way to go through a learning cycle. And we do it, in fact, we do it online and we do it on ground, but online, I'm really excited about. We do do online courses. These are asynchronous. People can do them whenever they want. They don't have to meet in a classroom. They start by asking a really big audacious question, something way too complicated and interdisciplinary to ever be answered. When we do this in the classroom, the whole class does this. And we together have a big audacious question that not one of us knows the answer to. So that's the first thing. There's no know-it-all standing in the front of the room and going, this is the truth that you need to memorize. Instead, everyone brings the bits that they that they know already. And we go through these inquiry cycles. What's your next small question, your natural next question that you find a little answer to? Then you can share what you've learned with the class. And everyone else has shared their thing. So here's a very important point, every person brings unique knowledge that no one else has. So it normalizes the idea that every person speaks in every meeting and every person is listened to in every meeting. And that's a really diversity and inclusive goal. Mm -hmm. Um, and And then you synthesize all your knowledge into a great big mind map and a series of infographics so that you've integrated what you've learned into your brain and you begin to understand the landscape of knowledge needed to get to your question. And so this process is actually quite successful and gives people a sense that they can do with themselves.
0: Yeah, and so it's almost like a collaborative proposed trajectory for how one might go about solving this seemingly impossible question.
1: That's right, that's right. And so how you take many, many small steps and they begin to add up to bigger and bigger things. Um, And we started a little company for the software platform that allows you to do this. And then, uh, and we do it in the classroom and, and there are other classrooms doing it too and making it better and adding to the experiment and figuring out how to improve the process.
0: Yeah, and, and so that way it's very naturally iterative too which is cool because right. you see the little like steps in between um, right. which get you closer to this, you know impenetrable large problem uh, because okay. there's always, yeah. you know, even if you think of like these large questions that we discuss on this podcast quite often like the origin of life or, you know the origin of time, et cetera. I mean, how are you going to get it? It's almost like the the paradox of in, in, infinite divisibility.
1: But yeah, you just get right. closer,
0: and there is so much more to know. Even if you don't know the answer to the question you initially asked, you just have to have the confidence to, uh, I don't know, trust your instincts and continue to explore.
1: And particularly in that topic, the origin of life, and you know, is there life off of the Earth, and would it be, you know, I, I think I think you and I have the same feeling that it would be a microorganism, and I always think it must live under the surface, you know, of a planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so you must think in, in a sense this way about that problem yourself. Like you need biology and you need chemistry and you need planetary science. You need all these different aspects of human endeavor, many, many little answers to begin to add up to some sort of understanding.
0: Yeah, and on top of that, you need the sort of like human ingenuity engineering to be able to get the, the data from the space so that yeah. we can have the chemists and the bio, biologists and the physicists all discussing whether or not this thing that's happening in this cavern is interesting or not. Exactly. uh, And
1: then we think then we also need the religious leaders and the philosophers and the social scientists and the psychologists and the lawyers and the policymakers. You know, everyone needs to be thinking about this. Right, exactly. (laughs) Society-changing thing.
0: Oh no, the the impact I think would be unbelievable. I mean, it's it's bigger than the Copernican revolution, right? If we recognize that we aren't alone, that's a big schism for all of us across the planet to have to deal with and probably in very different, potentially dangerous, potentially, you know, inspiring ways.
1: I agree. And so I think this is a big reason for both of our interplanetary initiatives and all the things we do together and with the other ones around the world is to help us prepare for that. Mm Because it is coming. There'll come a moment when we know an answer.
0: Right. And so I wonder if maybe your artifact, whether it's like you say a vapor or an amulet or something, might also give everyone the uh, recognition of their own agency to react in the way that seems most natural to them to something that's so alarming, Um, the the confidence to be honest in one's reaction to something as profound as this.
1: Yes, Yes. and also the perspective of who we are, which is another reason that's so important for what we're all working on, is we get very distracted by our own dusty feet and the squabble we have with our neighbor. But when you start thinking about the fact that we live on a planet of many, many, many billions of planets out there in our universe, and the scale of length and time Uh, that we are a tiny fragment of, it puts us into a perspective that makes it easier to react with some generosity toward our neighbors.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We say earlier in the conversation, we were talking about how interplanetary invites individuals to think on scales of time longer than their own, you know, duration on their own mortal duration but the space is, is something too. When you, when you really begin to comprehend the vastness of even the space that our civilization already occupies, because we have the rovers, we have the flag, we're large. Um, yes, my little, the little, you know, easement issue that I'm having with the next door neighbor, because my car is more conveniently parked there. Yeah. it, It matters not. So
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So this would be a really, um, it would do two things, this, Device, whatever we think it looks like, it would recalibrate exactly as you say—a sort of more true perspective of our collaborative existence on this planet in space. Um, but it would also remind us that we each have so much to contribute in our collective understanding of that occupation in space.
1: Right. That's right. That's right. It's both a sense of perspective and a sense of responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can I mean only a lot
1: of this artifact. I hope these are pretty great aliens.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it seems like they're willing to explore, even if they don't recognize how awesome we think our planet is, they're going elsewhere. Right. They, they're going elsewhere. They have plans. Um, it's good. Usually when people give me an object, I'm I'm pretty quick to do the devil's advocate weaponization, but I can't think oh. of this going poorly. <laughs> I can't think of someone oh, using this nice. for evil. So it's oh, good.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, no, that's great. Um, okay, well, we can only hope that such an object or such a potential psychological shift across human society will take place because I can't see anything but goodness emerging from that new recentered perspective.
1: I hope so. And I'm really glad that there's so many of us who are thinking this way and hoping to spread that sense of agency and responsibility and we'll yeah. all be there for it.
0: Yeah. And Lindy, thank you so much for, for kind of beginning this thought process for me. I wasn't really thinking about, um, the importance of that kind of crossover interdisciplinarily until right around the time you came into my world. And so you're a big, you factor very largely for me. So I'm very, very happy to have spent this time with you.
1: Well, I'm so grateful for the time and the invitation to talk and for your generosity in sharing all of these ideas around the world. Thank you so much. Well, thank
0: you, Lindy. And um, yeah, maybe we'll touch base. We're hoping that Interplanetary is an in-person event this fall. We'll see. But if it is, perhaps we can get a status update on just how far out this wonderful mission is.
1: Would love it. Would love it. Look forward to many more interactions in the future.
0: Same. All right. We'll have a lovely afternoon. All
1: right. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.